Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, though the weeds you are about to enter are dense, you'll have an excellent guide and Pulitzer Prize-winning author Steve Cole. Still, this brief primer may aid you. When the United States invaded Afghanistan in 2001, it entered historically treacherous territory. Foreign powers had often found themselves bogged down in the region. The objective was to defeat al-Qaeda and remove the Taliban from power. One of the main players in the conflict was the ISI, the Pakistani Intelligence Service, an organization ranked among the top intelligence agencies in the world. Directorate S is the covert action arm of the ISI. Steve Cole is a staff writer for The New Yorker. His new book, a sequel to his Pulitzer Prize winner, Ghost Wars is Directorate S, the CIA and America's Secret Wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan, 2001 to 2016. His new work, he writes, seeks to provide a thorough, reliable history of how the CIA, ISI, and Afghan intelligence agencies influenced the rise of a new war in Afghanistan after the fall of the Taliban, and how that war fostered a revival of al-Qaeda, allied terrorist networks, and eventually branches of the Islamic State. Steve Cole spoke at Seattle University's Piggott Auditorium on February 15th. His appearance was co-presented by the Elliott Bay Book Company and Town Hall Seattle. Jenny Cecil Moore recorded the talk. Steve Cole is the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning Ghost Wars and the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University. From 2007 to 2013, he was the president of the New America Foundation, a public policy institute in Washington, D.C. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker and previously worked for 20 years at The Washington Post, where he received a Pulitzer Prize for explanatory journalism in 1990. He's the author of seven other books, including On the Grand Trunk Road, The Bin Ladens, and Private Empire. But his latest book, Directorist S., is a chronicle of the history of the CIA and its involvement in the war in Afghanistan and the subject of tonight's talk. Please join me in welcoming Steve Cole. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming out. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing from you a little bit later, but I'll... Uh, give you a sense of some of the flavor and narrative and themes in this, uh, in this book. And uh, we'll, we'll go from there. So on February 15th, 1989, um, the final armored column of the limited contingent of Soviet forces in Afghanistan, as the Soviet occupation force called itself, crossed over the Friendship Bridge above the Amu Darya River, officially ending Soviet combat operations in the country. So General Boris Gromov was the final Soviet commander of the war, and he sat in the column's last armored personnel carrier, and then in the middle of the bridge, he got out uh, and climbed down, and without looking back at Afghanistan, walked the rest of the way to be met by his teenage son, who gave him a bouquet of flowers. So toward the end of 2014, President Obama uh, declared that the United States' combat war in Afghanistan would also end, and he and his cabinet asked the then commanding general, uh, John Campbell, in Kabul to 
do something to mark the end of the war, what they thought was the end of the war. But they weren't leaving the country. They were staying to advise and assist the Afghan security forces. And the war wasn't going especially well, so they didn't want to call much attention to themselves with a public event. So they staged the departure ceremony in a gymnasium inside the bunkered compound of the International Security Assistance Force headquarters in Kabul. They handed out a program to everyone who came that included instructions about how to lay down in the event of a rocket attack. <laughs> so it was not a, a glorious uh, end of the war, and it turned out not to actually be the end of the war because a year later, when the Islamic State popped up in eastern Afghanistan, President Obama ordered the U.S. forces back into direct combat against that part of the opposition to the constitutional government. Today, we're fighting two wars in Afghanistan, one against the Islamic State that has a certain kind of framework of rules and direct combat by the U.S., and the other an advise and assist war, um, helping the Afghan security forces wage their war against the Taliban and essentially acting as their air force as well as uh, their kind of intelligence service. So this is the story of how we got from 9-11 to here, to this mess, this stalemate. And at the center of the story, though by no means the only part of it, uh, is the Pakistani intelligence service, ISI, which was a factor both in the defeat of the Soviet occupation and in the struggles that the United States and its European allies have had uh, since 2005, particularly. So Directorate S is the covert action arm of the ISI that has supported groups like the Taliban, Kashmiri militants, and others. Uh, it, it was really strengthened during the 1980s when the CIA and Saudi Arabia collaborated with ISI and with Directorate S uh, to funnel guns and money to the Afghan Mujahideen. But after that war ended, after the Soviets left, Pakistan had discovered this strategy of using these militias to menace India in particular. So it started to apply the lessons it had learned in the Afghan war as a collaborator of the CIA to its problems in Kashmir. And then as the Afghan civil war uh, worsened, um, the Taliban rose and Pakistan uh, basically patronized the Taliban as they took over all of Afghanistan, and ISI was central to that project. So, you know, this was not a mystery to the United States. It, far from it. ISI and even its covert action wing had been collaborators with the CIA. And yet when it became apparent that ISI was back in action, uh, this time against American forces and NATO forces, as I say, around 2005, certainly by 2006, uh, two administrations, the Bush administration and then the Obama administration, really struggled to do anything about it. Um, there was a, there's a character in the book who is a CIA station chief in Kabul a few times and eventually ran the agency's counterterrorism center named Chris Wood. And he, when he was station chief in Kabul around 2011, a lot of members of Congress or senators who were visiting would go in and get an hour with him. And he had a... Uh, he used this to basically impress upon them that the whole war was falling apart because of the sanctuary that the Taliban enjoyed in Pakistan. And he, he used to say, we either address this sanctuary and we win the war, or we don't, we lose the war. It's that simple. Now, I'm not sure that it's that simple, but that was the, the kind of obvious flaw in the, in the way the war was going that just persisted year after year, despite being well known and well recognized. 
neither the Bush administration nor the Obama administration could find the will or the way to change that equation. So why? Why did we fail to achieve our aims in Afghanistan besides the problem of Directorate S or including the problem of Directorate S? I want to talk about four areas uh, where, we, where we failed ourselves, failed our allies, failed the Afghans that we made promises to. One is the problem of our war aims, which have been confused and laced with contradictions really almost since the fall of the Taliban uh, in early 2002. The second was the failure of our relationship with longtime Afghan President Hamid Karzai and, and of our investments in democratic Afghan politics more broadly. The third is the illusions of the big, heavy counterinsurgency war that we fought between 2008, 2012, or 13. And finally, the failure of our political and diplomatic strategy to resource it, but to carry one out that would perhaps reduce the violence in the war. So let me start with the problem of, uh, of our war aims. One of the things that gets chronicled in the story is the fact that in both the late Bush administration and the Obama administration, the War Cabinet, the interagency kind of planners for American military and foreign policy, must have carried out at least half a dozen uh, classified strategy reviews to try to figure out how to fix what was going sideways in the war. And one thing that um, I was sort of amused to discover is that these reviews, one year after another, pretty much all took place in the same classified conference room on the fourth floor of the Eisenhower Executive Office Building next door to the West Wing. Be a different group of people who would come in, but the reviews pretty much all worked the same way. In the morning, they go on for days, in the morning the intelligence professionals would come in and brief the decision makers about, say, the political demography of the region, or the CIA made these maps every six months where they would color each of Afghanistan's 400 administrative districts a different color to indicate whether the government controlled it, the Taliban controlled it, it was contested or it was independently controlled. And these were very popular maps and they would sit at the table and pour over them and talk about how to move the colors uh, by changing their strategy. But there were fundamental problems that recurred in these reviews about the whole purpose of the American war in Afghanistan. In um, 2009, for example, during the Obama administration's two long and, and you know, painful reviews of the war, one in the spring and one in the autumn, the, the cabinet there, the principals and the deputies who attended these meetings, they wrestled with the question that you would hope um, government decision makers would wrestle with when they're sending young American men and women to war, which is what are the vital interests that the United States has in this war, so vital as to justify the sacrifices that we're asking young men and women to make in combat. And they really took that question seriously. They argued about it. Not all of them had the same view, but they, they settled on two vital interests in 2009. One was Al-Qaeda, which was still very active, attempting and sometimes carrying out attacks across uh, borders in Europe attempting attacks in the United States. It was uh, not, um, you know, it, it was maybe a thousand volunteers at most, uh, and it still seemed dangerous enough to warrant military action. And the second vital interest that they identified 
was the security of Pakistan's nuclear weapons. Pakistan has 100 plus nuclear weapons and dozens of millenarian terrorist groups on its soil. And the fear was that if those weapons got into the wrong hand, it could be a real catastrophe. And so it was vitally important to make sure that didn't happen. Okay, let's think about those two vital interests. In 2009, whether we accept them or we, we partially accept them, one thing is irrefutable about them. Neither problem was located in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda had migrated from Afghanistan to Pakistan. They had fled Afghanistan during the bombing of 2001 and relocated across the border. And of course, the problem of Pakistan's nuclear weapons uh, is in Pakistan. And the group rationalized this problem by saying, well, if we don't go into Afghanistan to stabilize that country and reverse the course of the war, then Afghanistan will fall apart and Al-Qaeda will come back. So that's the reason we have to do this, even though it's a, but it's a, it's, you can see, it's a rather indirect uh, and even speculative reason to, to fight a war, to send soldiers into rural Kandahar uh, to step over IED tripwires. Um, the other contradiction that surfaced was basically whether or not the Taliban should be understood as an enemy of the United States and whether we really, it was in our interest to try to defeat them. This part of the conversation started with a sense of realism. Even uh, Bob Gates, who was the Secretary of Defense at the beginning of the Obama administration, holdover from the Bush administration, he said, look, there's, the Taliban are part of Afghanistan. They may be abhorrent. Um, they may be coercive. They may have revolutionary aims, but they are 25,000 strong, and they are part of the fabric of the country. There is no way that we're going to defeat them militarily at a cost or on a timeline that's acceptable to us. Um, and in any event, there were no Afghans on the, on the planes on September 11th. The Taliban had never carried out a cross-border, out-of-area terrorist attack against the United States. They fought the United States, they said, because the United States came into their country and they were going to liberate it from foreign occupation as they saw it. So there was this big debate in the Situation Room. Well, have we ever really said that we're going to defeat the Taliban? Because President Obama really did not want to fight a war against the Taliban. He did not want to embroil the United States into a long, grinding war against an indigenous extremist group that was rooted in the countryside. And a number of his advisors agreed with him about that, but they were still going to send tens of thousands of Americans into Afghanistan to pursue the vital interests that were located in Pakistan. And when they got to Afghanistan, they were going to find the Taliban. And there were a lot of folks at the Pentagon, generals, commanders, who had been out there and had fought in Afghanistan. And they really did want to fight the Taliban. They kind of wanted to finish the war or at least beat the Taliban down. So they got into this argument about whether this was really a commitment that the United States had ever made. And the next day, the Pentagon team came into the room with a PowerPoint deck and they put up slides of every statement that American presidents and senators and others had made promising to defeat the Taliban. So they said, no, you may not want to do it, but you've said you're going to do it. So in the end, they settled this argument by uh, defining as a goal reversing the Taliban's momentum, degrading the Taliban. You know, if any of you are English teachers grading papers or editors trying to put a magazine to bed, that's not precise enough language to be satisfactory. 
It's not the kind of language you use to send people into, the, into combat. Now, you could say that this is a subjective standard and an indefinite one. You know, the, a kind of fair, a, a more generous way to describe what was decided was that um, they did not feel that they could afford to allow Afghanistan to collapse. They had not made an adequate effort to train up the Afghan army or the police. They should have done that by 2009 but the job was unfinished, and so they were gonna go in to fight in order to buy enough time to hand the war off to the Afghans. There might be another American war that you'll remember uh, where that was kind of the theory of the case. So um, I'm gonna talk about, there's a chapter in the book titled Losing Karzai, which is kind of what happened uh, during the uh, period 2009-2010. You know, it's become fashionable to think of Hamid Karzai as, as unstable, you know, consumed by conspiracy theories. And there's, there's no question that during the time that he was our partner in this war, with all this sacrifice, all this expenditure, that he was, um, his behavior in private was, was, you know, unbalanced. But why did Karzai come to doubt the intentions of the United States, and Britain for that matter, one of the reasons was he could not understand why the United States allowed ISI to persist with its interference in the war and its support for the Taliban. I, you know, I covered the war as kind of a beat reporter for the New Yorker. I was over there a lot. I've interviewed Karzai a couple of times. And I was surprised when I went back to really excavate as much of the detail of who said what to whom when and how these decisions were made uh, for the book to discover that Essentially, Karzai was very consistent right from the time that he became president. Any time an American came to visit him, he would say, the war's in Pakistan. You've got to do more about ISI. Why aren't you putting more pressure on ISI? And he would organize his cabinet to basically say this again and again every time a new American came into the picture. When candidate Obama visited Afghanistan for the first time in the summer of 2008, Karzai and his cabinet plan for this opportunity. They could see that Obama might become president. And they all decided that even though they were kind of fighting with one another about a lot of subjects, that they would use this meeting with, with candidate Obama to basically all say, the problem is ISI. You got to do more about ISI. And one after another around the table. And uh, you know, Senator Obama asked if you know, there was a way that Pakistan civilian leaders could curb the ISI, and Karzai said, not without the help of the United States. The problem is ISI, which runs the country. So what developed was that Karzai took it for granted that the United States, as the world's you know, supreme military superpower, could force ISI to stop aiding the Taliban if it really wanted to do so. And since the US didn't do this, he sunk into conspiracy thinking, that there had to be another explanation as to why they weren't doing this. And eventually he concluded that the US was secretly conspiring to allow ISI to destabilize Afghanistan so that it could justify maintaining military bases in the country for an indefinite period. Now, this conspiracy theory really frustrated the Americans, especially when the stakes got high as they were negotiating their departure with Karzai's government. And at one point uh, in 2013, a special envoy from the State Department named James Dobbins went to visit Karzai to try to get him off this idea that the United States was deliberately allowing ISI to destabilize Afghanistan. 
and uh, Dobbin said to him, you know, Mr. President, between Edward Snowden and WikiLeaks, you know, you've got several million documents to examine. Can you find any mention of this, of this design? And Karzai paused and he looked at him and said, maybe you don't know the plan. <laughs> he said, you know, there is a deep state in, in America. So the frustrations built up and Karzai um, had another reason to be paranoid about the US and that was the 2009 presidential election. At the end of his first five-year term, he was up for re-election in August of 2009. Um, and during the run-up to that vote, Richard Holbrook, who was the special envoy out of the State Department initially uh, on the diplomatic side, started to um, very indiscreetly recruit candidates to run against Karzai. Uh, he talked to Ashraf Ghani, he talked to Hanif Atmar, he talked to virtually and encouraged them to get in the race, run. Now, you can't be a minister in a country like Afghanistan and not take an invitation like that as some kind of signal that maybe the U.S. is going to conspire to put you into office. They also all were concerned that Karzai would think that they were betraying him, and so they immediately reported these conversations to Karzai, who heard all about it. There's a scene where, where Holbrook's in Kabul, and there's a, a he, he runs into a guy named Ahmed Zia Massoud, who ended up as a vice president of Afghanistan, he was a brother of the deceased commander, Ahmed Shah Massoud. And Ahmed Zia says to him, you know, I think I am the only significant person in Kabul who you have not asked to run for president. <laughs> I think I, I feel insulted. <laughs> um, but the truth was that Holbrook, who described diplomacy as like jazz, it was a kind of improvisation, he had no authorization from the White House to do this and he had no plan to actually replace Hamid Karzai. And so at the end of the election crisis, which uh, required you know, Band-Aid diplomacy and, and a lot of activity just to save it, we ended up with the worst of both worlds. Karzai was back in office for five years and he was correctly convinced that the US had tried to unseat him. So you add that to his frustrations about ISI and it's not surprising that he started to become a little unbalanced. Around this time he goes for a walk in the Arg Palace where he lives and works, kind of a house arrest in this compound because of the security situation. He can't move around very much. So people come to visit him. Sometimes he would walk in circles in his garden and he goes for a walk with one of his ministers. He's particularly frustrated with the Americans. And he says, if we can't run the, gun, if we can't run the government, we should just bring the Taliban back to punish both the Americans and the Panjshiris, referring to the Northern Alliance. Karzai's uh, son, young son, Mirwais, happened to be with him. And the minister asks him, do you, do you want this boy to grow up under a Taliban regime? I don't want that for my son. He said, you know, Mr. President, you're right. The Americans have not been fair to you. At the beginning, they called you an Afghan Mandela. Now they call you an Afghan Mugabe. This is too much. But we have to admit we've made our mistakes. We have to take responsibility for our part of this. And if the government in Kabul collapses, he went on, the U.S. will not be threatened, but we will all be wiped out. And that's what kept Karzai on side, his dependency on the international system for his own life, his security, his government. And he resented being a ward of the international system. And he saw himself toward the end have an opportunity to kind of write himself into Afghan history as to someone who did not act uh, in alliance with the U.S. And so he became more and more defiant for some of these reasons. 
There's more to say about the failure of our strategy in, in Afghan constitutional politics, but I'll just mention one other reason why Karzai was no longer a reliable partner by the time he left office in 2014. When, uh, when the Obama administration came in, they felt that the Bush administration had coddled Karzai. In fact, I think George W. Bush had built a successful relationship with Karzai. He talked to him on the video conference every couple of weeks. He kept reassuring him. Karzai never really acted out um, because he had this lifeline uh, right into the White House. But the Obama administration thought that this was a form of dependency that they needed to break, that they needed to pressure Karzai into improving his own performance in corruption and governance and in the drug trafficking uh, problem. And you can understand why they thought that. But the way they delivered the message wasn't very effective. So Joe Biden goes out to the region. He goes to Islamabad, then he flies into Kabul, and he sits down with uh, Karzai in the Arg Palace. And Karzai does this, says to him the same thing he says to everyone. You know, the issue is ISI. The issue is Pakistan. You've got to put more pressure on them. And Biden replies, Mr. President, Pakistan is 50 times more important to the United States than Afghanistan. You know, it goes back to those vital interests. That's probably what he had in mind. Uh, maybe not the most diplomatic way to describe it to the president of Afghanistan. So counterinsurgency. I mean, president Obama inherited a terrible situation. He, the war was falling apart. The um, Bush administration had done a strategy review in which it recommended a troop escalation. He's inaugurated in January 2009 in the midst of the worst uh, recession in half a century. Um, and the first thing that happens is that a bunch of generals come into his office and say, Mr. President, you've got to send more troops to Afghanistan. You've got to do it now because of the election schedule. We can't wait. It takes time to get them out there. And uh, Biden and, and Holbrook, who had been around and for whom Vietnam kind of lingered in the background, said, you know, Mr. President, don't, don't be pressured by these, by these generals. Let's stop. Let's, let's pause. Let's think about it. But Obama had campaigned on a promise to fix the Afghan war. He had made the point that the Iraq war was a strategic fiasco and that al-Qaeda was the real threat to the United States and it was at issue in the Afghan war. So he had kind of boxed himself in with the campaign uh, narrative. And the schedule was what it was. And then the president became estranged from Holbrook, his principal regional advisor, he found Holbrook kind of too big of a personality, self-dramatizing. Holbrook is a big per was a big personality and self-dramatizing and quite a, you know, quite an acquired taste um, in Washington. <laughs> but he was very experienced and very smart and he, um, one of the problems that opened up between him and the president was that he kept talking about Vietnam where he had served in the Mekong Delta. And, uh, and Obama made it very plain that he didn't want to hear um, about this comparison. This was not Vietnam. This was not the 1960s. This was a different set of problems. And, uh, you know, I was reporting at this time and keeping all my diaries and notes and things. And when I went back through all my conversations with, with uh, Holbrook, um, I remember him talking after he'd just come out of a discussion with the president in which the president had reprimanded him for, for talking about Vietnam. And, uh, 
and he admitted that this was that he had hurt himself by doing this and then but then he said they shouldn't be so afraid of history well one of the parts of history that they shouldn't have been so afraid of was the outlandish claims that were made by uh, the generals that Obama inherited about the potential of counterinsurgency doctrine to reshape the war, to connect Afghans to their government, to um, create a, um, a lasting um, change in the attitudes of the Afghan civilian population toward the Taliban, to separate the Taliban from the population in the very places where the Taliban had risen. And in Washington, if you pass through in those years, there was kind of a bubble, like a tulip bubble or a Bitcoin bubble around counterinsurgency doctrine. They had just carried out this successful surge into Baghdad, um, led by General Petraeus. He was a very powerful and charismatic uh, figure, an intellectual of, of sorts, certainly he had a PhD. And he really persuaded um, a lot of people in Washington that if they just applied counterinsurgency doctrine to the Afghan war, they would get a positive result. One of the problems with counterinsurgency is you need a lot of troops to carry it out. The typical kind of analysis is that you need a ratio of 20 soldiers and police to every 1,000 uh, inhabitants to create the kind of security and presence uh, necessary. And if you did that math in Afghanistan, then you'd need 600,000 troops, and that wasn't going to happen. Uh, there were no Afghan forces of that scale at that time, and the U.S. force could escalate, but certainly not to that size. So to solve this in the same conference room in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, they basically just changed the math problem. They identified 80 key terrain districts, as they called, called them, where they would fight the counterinsurgency war. They, they, these were the districts in Taliban country that they thought were most important to subdue. And they basically created this overdetermined engineering diagram that birthed a lot of jargon-filled language about district stability frameworks. And I went to a Pentagon briefing during this time, and I wrote down in my notebook what the colonel said in explaining how this was going to work. And he said, it's, it's great to make sure the population is attached to the government, which almost sounded like a kind of Soviet worker's slogan of some sort. It was so abstract and and wrote, the mantra was clear, hold, build, transfer, meaning transfer territory, rid of Taliban influence to a legitimate Afghan government and its security forces. So you can see the abstract modeling of how that would work. But as Sherard Coper Coles, the British envoy, who had had two years of hard experience in Kabul as ambassador, told his counterparts that summer of 2009, Afghan capacity is an illusion the entire sequence of hold, build, transfer is based on wishful thinking. The White House uh, war czar at the time was a guy named Doug Lute, two-star general who had become the main National Security Council advisor on uh, Afghanistan. And you know, he's a West Point graduate. He was a military operations man. He'd served in Iraq and other places. And he, he, the way he explained it to President Obama was he said, you know, Mr. President, you can send a battalion of U.S. Marines not only anywhere in Afghanistan, but literally anywhere in the world, and they will clear an area. And as long as you're willing to keep them there, they'll hold it. The problem is handing it to the Afghans and doing something with it. Now, by the end of 2009, though he never said so 
in public. I think it was plain to a lot of people around him that President Obama had lost faith in the promises of this counterinsurgency doctrine, and he wanted to start coming home. That's why at West Point in December of that year, he announced both a surge of U.S. combat troops that would ultimately number more than a, about 100,000 U.S. troops and 150,000 international combat troops at the peak in 2011. Uh, and, but he announced that decision, and then he also announced the date at which these troops would start coming home. So we were going in and we were coming out. Now, what this left on the ground was a really difficult fight for the soldiers, the infantry, the Marines, who were sent into these key terrain districts to try to clear them so that they could be held, so that they could be transferred and built. And um, since I'm doing okay on time, I'll read you something. I, the, the narrative is mostly set you know, in the ARG Palace, in the Army headquarters, ISI headquarters, in the Situation Room, in the US uh, uh, de decision-making venues. But I, I thought, but I also tried uh, to um, intersperse reporting and narrative on the ground so that it wasn't just a, a story of decision-makers, but also of the consequences of these decisions. And so the, I, uh, there's a chapter here called Lives and Limbs which is about one of the hard, very hardest fights that happened during the counterinsurgency phase of the war, which was to the west of Kandahar in this irrigated zone south of Highway 1 between Kandahar and Helmand. And uh, in the summer, uh, because of the, the fertile um, irrigation system, it, it's called the green zone. It becomes very dense with vegetation, grapes, um, 10-foot-tall marijuana plants was uh, one uh, feature of it, um, and vegetation that was just very difficult to walk through. And the Taliban had been embedding inside this, this foliage for years, preparing uh, for the Americans. They'd outlasted attempts to kind of clear them out of this uh, ground before, and um, the U.S. came in in the summer of 2010 determined to do it. But by this time, the, the military was so strained because of the deployments to Iraq and now the escalation in Afghanistan that they were having to improvise with the kinds of forces they put into this environment. So this little passage is about an, art, an artillery unit called the 1320th that was made up of soldiers who had not been trained to fight infantry. They'd been trained to fight from bases, from a distance with big guns, you know, the precision of firing artillery from, from far, uh, far from contact. But because they didn't have enough infantry, they converted the, this artillery unit into, a, into an infantry unit. And I'll just, just read you a few paragraphs about what their experience was like. The initial phase of Colonel Art Kandarian's campaign in the Green Zone wasn't much different from that of the US Army in the American West during the 19th century. Build forts in Indian country and poke around. The task forces Engineering units designed a crude combat outpost, a COP or COP, as it was instantly rendered in jargon, that could be erected in 10 to 14 days. The outposts were usually about 200 meters by 250 meters in area. The outer walls were made of HESCO gabions, manufactured blast walls of dirt held together by mesh wire 11 feet high and 7 feet thick. Combat engineers also erected tall observation towers where soldiers on watch could look out directly at this canopy of thick green foliage. It was sometimes easier for the Taliban to spot the Americans in the towers than vice versa, however. In June, a Taliban sniper killed Brandon King of the 1320th, shooting him square in the face as he stood on watch in one of these towers. 
forward American units detained suspected insurgents and used retinal scanners to log them in classified databases. But interrogations and human intelligence collection in Kandahar that summer rarely produced insights beyond the known fact that many Taliban fighters were from or trained in Pakistan. Most useful, the more useful tactical intelligence about Taliban positions and movements came from listening to their radio communication. The enemy had no means to encrypt their chatter, which was easily intercepted and translated. The monitoring allowed American platoons to anticipate ambush attempts and to stay ahead of the Taliban's reactions during combat. Platoons depended on their most experienced sergeants to survive. Sergeant Josh Strickland had served two tours in Iraq and one in Afghanistan before joining 3rd Platoon A Battery of the 1320th, the Artillery Misfits. During his first couple of weeks at Combat Outpost Nolan, Strickland's patrols could not walk 100 yards without hitting an IED or getting lit up by Taliban from several sides. Listening to the enemy radio talk, they learned the, the enemy knew they were artillery, not infantry. The Taliban said, these are not real war fighters. They were wrong, but it took time and heavy losses for the 1320th to prove it. The first time Strickland's platoon got hit, he saw a young artilleryman burst out crying. The soldier screamed again, I didn't sign up for this shit. In general, Strickland thought, the lowest ranking first time soldiers adjusted to the stress better than the more experienced artillerymen because the rookies had no expectations from prior deployments. Because of Strickland's experience and uncanny ability to avoid IEDs, soldiers continually asked him to walk point on their patrols. He chose to walk 10 to 15 feet ahead of everyone else so that he could carefully identify the best route and so that if he did make a mistake, it would cost one life instead of several. He was ultimately wounded and medevaced to Kandahar Airfield four times. Each time as he recovered in the hospital, a doctor would ask Strickland if he wanted to go back or go home. What am I going to say, he thought. He went back. Day after day, in platoon after platoon, they shouldered their loads, stepped out on presence patrols and hoped for the best. They walked past villagers near their outposts who were neither helpful nor hostile. One elder near Strickland's base kept a pigeon that he would let fly every time a, pl a platoon departed, apparently to let the Taliban know they were on the march. So, one more theme of our struggle, which was our failure to identify and carry out a successful political strategy to complement our emphasis on military action. Here's another contradiction in this history that just keeps recurring in the, in the story. General after general goes to command, American general after American general goes to command the war in Afghanistan. And they will say in public, there is no purely military solution to this war. There is not going to be a battlefield victory. We're going to batter the Taliban for the purpose of getting them to the negotiating table. I think it was David Petraeus who said, you can't capture and kill your way out of an industrial strength insurgency, which is certainly what the Taliban represented by 2011. But year after year, notwithstanding this acknowledgement, it was military action that was prioritized and resourced, and the diplomatic and political strategy languished. Richard Holbrook, who had hoped to negotiate an end to the war, died in December 2010. And in, that, in the months before his death, he, he wrote a memo to Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State. It hasn't been published, but I, I 
was able to get a hold of it for the book. He said, this is December 2010, our current strategy will not succeed. Even though everybody, everyone paid lip service to the proposition that counterinsurgency required a mixed civilian military strategy, last year the military dominated and defined the choices. There is a fundamental flaw in our strategy, the mismatch between our stated objectives and the time and resources allocated to achieve them. The best that can be hoped for is a bloody stalemate. Now, in September 2010, President Obama did authorize secret negotiations with the Taliban. He was persuaded by um, Doug Lute, the war czar, and also Holbrooke's successors at the State Department that there was a viable channel. The Taliban had identified a man named Tayyab Aga as their political negotiator, the head of their political commission. Tayyab Aga had been talking to the Germans. The Germans set up a meeting with him uh, and some envoys from the United States in a safe house outside of Munich um, in the autumn of 2010. And, uh, but the war was grinding along. There were really several wars operating independently. The Pentagon had its war. Within that war, the Marines had their war. Uh, the Special Forces had their war. The CIA had its war, primarily the drone campaign across the border in Pakistan. And here was the State Department working out of this uh, group called the Conflict Resolution Cell, which was so secret that even people at the cabinet level didn't know about it if they didn't have a need to know about it. And so the, the Germans say to uh, the National Security Council staff, look, Tayabag is he's willing to go to this meeting to talk with you about a past, path to peace. But he's worried because a lot of Taliban have come to meetings with Americans and then gotten snatched and sent off to Guantanamo. And he's a little bit worried that he's being set up for this to happen. And uh, so the National Security Council staff goes to President Obama and reports this message from the Germans. And President Obama says, well, look, tell the Germans to tell Tayabaga that I'm offering my personal guarantee that this is not going to happen to him, that, he, that he's going to come to this meeting where all, all we're going to do is talk. And so the National Council staff, uh, Security Council staff go back and they relay this message to the Germans and then they have a meeting amongst themselves and they say, okay, just to be safe, let's not tell the CIA about this meeting <laughs> because if they know what, planes he, what plane he's on and when he's gonna be at the safe house, you never know, he could be on some target list, there could be some like automated snatch thing that happens, so let's just not tell them about it. And I thought, wow, noted. We should all be careful out there. <laughs> so the negotiations went on for two and a half years. It's a fascinating story. A lot of information, a lot of ideas and insights were exchanged. They collapsed uh, for a number of reasons. Um, partly, I don't think that the U.S. really resourced the talks with the whole of government, with the, with the kind of full commitment of whatever leverage and, and strengths the United States has in the world. You know, you look at the Obama administration's diplomatic achievements, the agreement with Iran that was carried out with China and Russia and European allies, the reversal of decades of policy in Cuba. So this was a, a, an administration that could get really hard things done when it put everything into it. But it's frustrating as a chronicler of the Afghan conflict to see that this was really not the case with the negotiations or the political and diplomatic strategy um, around this war where the stakes were so high and where, and where young Americans were, were fighting and dying. 
the, the talks failed in part because Hamid Karzai was frustrated and didn't want them to succeed, and they failed in part because ISI, the Pakistanis, wanted a seat at the table, and, and that undermined their, their prospects. So there's more that we can talk about, but I'll, I'll wrap up because I want to take your questions. Um, the Trump administration is the third to carry this war forward. Um, they've changed a few aspects of policy, withdrawn aid from Pakistan. They've made declarations that we're going to stay forever to fight to the last terrorist in the hope that this resolve will somehow weaken the Taliban or their supporters in Pakistan. They've loosened the rules of engagement, dropped more bombs last year than the, than the couple of years before. But there are 10 to 15,000 American combat troops plus Afghan forces, and um, that compares to 150,000, as I said, international combat troops at the peak. So with a tenth of as many international troops and Afghan forces that are um, undermined by illiteracy and, and factionalism and the fact that it's a young army, doesn't have much of a, of a history in its um, current form, it's very difficult to see how these maps will change. It is a bloody stalemate. And I think uh, in 2021, um, whoever the next president to be inaugur inaugurated is, whether that's President Trump being re-inaugurated or someone else, I think this war will still be going on. Thanks for listening. <laughs>
it's kind of a mix. I went through and read them all looking for evidence of this. Um, and he, he writes to his sons uh, and some of his wives who are in Iran and wanna, he wants them to come live with him. And he's very nervous about their passage, especially you know, encounters with the Pakistani security forces. And he's constantly writing them, you know, don't be careful, don't. So if, they, if he did have a cell, this would also make sense that was looking after him. It, the Pakistanis would have been super cautious about getting caught. So I think the form of their protection would have been, you know, here's a house, here are some locals to uh, put on your payroll, and don't call us, you know, we're not available to, to provide groceries or safe passage for your relatives, you know. So it's, it's come. There's another scene where one of his, his younger wife who you know, gave birth to several children while they were in exile in Pakistan, and they were moving houses, and she described in interviews with the Pakistani police that in one of these trips from Peshawar to Swat, there was a Pakistani policeman in the van with them. Okay, interesting. Um, so that's about as far as I got. Yes? Hi, thanks for coming. Um, this is a probably unanswerable question, but is there any kind of exit strategy that you could anticipate that besides winning in Afghanistan? It, it seems to me like it, the, the political question is the big one, is that no one wants to be the one to lose Afghanistan. So there's no way out, and they have to keep repeating the same strategies over and over again. Yeah. Um, well, I think the one thing that hasn't been tried as robustly as it might be would be to... Um, work on the diplomacy and the negotiation in a 360 fully committed way for a while to see if you could get a pathway to reduce the violence and maybe to internationalize some of the counterterrorism responsibilities in Afghanistan. Um, you know, the one, one starting place is that um, there isn't, everybody in the neighborhood uh, has a shared desire not to see Afghanistan collapse into another civil war that destabilizes the region and sends radicals flowing into their countries. That's true of Pakistan, which has been very worried about its own stability, even at the expense of Afghanistan stability. That's true of China. That's true of uh, Central Asian countries. It's true of Russia. It's true of Iran. I mean, Iran doesn't want our military presence there in part because it thinks we're going to use those bases to attack Iran but it also doesn't want Afghanistan, which, with which it shares a long border, um, to collapse. Uh, someone's calling me. I don't know who that is. <laughs> um, so, you know, that would be a basis for, um, for getting to work, but, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to be um, accepting that it's a very hard problem and that, you would, that it's not going to be um, um, the kind of outcome that America would write a script for, that it's going to be, uh, you know, a negotiation and it's going to be messy and there would have to be compromises in it. And uh, the question of whether opening channels back up with the Taliban, um, you know, is a, is a fruitful one. The, even the Trump administration says that the whole purpose of our stepped-up military campaign and our declared resolve is to create conditions for a negotiation. Um, but as was the case in 2011, the, the kind of hypothesis is not now. We need to make more progress. So I do, I do fear that we just keep doing the same things and expecting uh, different results. Yes. Thank you. So uh, I'm from Balochistan, region of Pakistan. So I was wondering, like, how do you see the Baluch ethnic conflict with Pakistan? 
uh, basically the Pakistani government and the civil uh, military has been accusing sometimes India uh, for supporting the Baluch insurgents and sometimes they have um, blamed and accused CIA for su supporting yeah. the Baluch insurgents. To, to what extent is it true that CIA is involved in Baluchistan? I was just wondering. Yeah, so Baluchistan is a province of Pakistan in the southwest, a very large geographical space, a relatively small population, and has energy resources, and it's, it's had um, you know, separatist groups and, and insurgencies of different kinds over the years, and the Pakistan army has been trying to stabilize Baluchistan, repress these uh, Baluch nationalists wherever it can, and Pakistan has come to think that the trouble that it has in Balochistan is not um, indigenous, although in fact there are a lot of indigenous unhappy Baluch, um, but that is really stirred up by outsiders. And the um, gentleman was saying India is often accused by Pakistan of stirring up trouble, um, the CIA and NDS, and what's the, what's the truth? Well, I mean, there's no question that uh, the Afghan intelligence service, the National Directorate for Security, has seen um, in Balochistan an opportunity to give back to Pakistan what it thinks Pakistan is giving to it. And uh, there have been clearly contacts. There was a, a, an exiled Baluch separatist who, was, who found kind of refuge in Kabul for a while. I remember being in Kabul and going over to dinner at the Pakistani ambassador's house. And you know, basically, if you're an American and you're going to a meeting with a Pakistani official, the first thing they're going to talk about is Baluchistan and, and how much India is doing. And in this case, I remember he, I said, are you sure this guy's here? Like, oh yeah, here's his address. We know because we, he's been taking in takeout every night from the Lebanese Taverna, and we've, we've got that place covered. We watched them take it down to his doorstep. Um, and there's cables and other things that come out showing that some version of that happened. Um, but. You know, the, the Pakistanis overstate India's presence in Afghanistan. They overstate the malign intentions of India's presence in Afghanistan. Um, and I don't think the CIA has any interest in destabilizing Balochistan. But the NDS is a client of the CIA, so who knows what, when, about what. Um, you know, the, the way I've always thought about it from, even though Pakistani generals and intelligence officers, in my opinion, overstate the presence and the malign intent of India in Afghanistan. It, there's also that old joke that, you know, just because you're paranoid, it doesn't mean India's not out to get you. So they've got issues. Um, it's a proxy contest that's been going on for a while. Yes. Yeah, my question's pretty similar to his, is the sense that, like, you know, when you hear, you know, Donald Trump says so many crazy things, but his comments actually on Pakistan, you know, have large elements of truth to them compared to, you know, what other presidents have said. And I'm wondering, um, do you think that the Trump administration's more um, stance toward Pakistan, taking more of a, a tougher line with them, is going to change the dynamic of the conflict? Or what impact will that have on, on what's going on? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think it's unlikely to change the dynamic if if, it, if the pressure is not accompanied by a serious negotiating and diplomatic element, because we've, Pakistan was sanctioned uh, by us even more aggressively during the 1990s over its nuclear program. That didn't change its conduct. And the other thing that's changed is that 
of course, Pakistan's most important ally in the world is China, and China today is a much uh, richer, uh, more active, uh, more reliable ally than it was in the 1990s. And what I see Pakistan doing, even before the Trump administration came in, is just kind of nesting in their relationship with China, just nesting inside that, that cover as best they can, and then maybe try to flip the script on the U.S. by trying to draw Russia into that conversation or try to draw other you know, ambivalent U.S. Um, allies or neighbors into a kind of Pakistan-centric idea about what should be done in Afghanistan rather than a U.S.-centric idea. Uh, you know, that China um, has you know, an enormous stake in its relationship with Pakistan, and it has, it has covered Pakistan for a lot of ills over the years at the UN and, and in many other ways. But you know, China's got its eyes open, too. They know that this country is you know, far from equilibrium, and, and they, they worry about their own terrorism problem. So you know, there's room there, but um, it would take a lot of time and expertise and commitment to try to figure out you know, how you could, you know, how you could move things. And just tweeting shameful, you know, tweeting insults at uh, a nationalistic Asian country, I don't think is likely to produce, um, you know, a great, great response. Yes. Why do you think there never was the appetite among the American decision makers to really pursue a strategy of pressuring Pakistan? Like, did they just not think it was going to work? What were the discrete reasons why they didn't do that? So, yeah, it's another good question, and um, the answer is that it goes back to those two vital interests, one of them being Pakistan's nuclear weapons and stability. You know, an unintended consequence of the 2001 war was the destabilization of Pakistan, because when we went into Afghanistan against al-Qaeda in the aftermath of 9-11, the al-Qaeda al who survived, the thousand or so international al-Qaeda, migrated into Pakistan. And so did the defeated Taliban leadership. And they melded into a world, you know, certainly created by ISI, of domestic militant groups and networks inside Pakistan. And al-Qaeda basically became an enabler, an accelerant, an ally of Pakistani radical groups that then turned on the Pakistani state starting around 2007 and inaugurated the worst period of domestic terrorism that Pakistan has ever known car bombings in Islamabad, in Lahore, blew up the, attacked the army's headquarters several times, killed sitting generals in mosques, even blew up an ISI building in Lahore at one point. Tens of thousands of Pakistanis died. There was a moment in early 2009 when the Pakistani Taliban, after assassinating Benazir Bhutto, had taken over a mountainous area called Swat, and they kind of moved out of Swat and started to head toward Islamabad. And I remember that spring, people thought, you know, the Taliban might enter, the Pakistani Taliban might enter Islamabad, the capital of a country with nuclear weapons. So because of the nuclear weapons and the threat of loss of control and the, just the general problem of having a nuclear weapon state be so unstable, the United States was constrained by how much pressure it could afford to bear and bring because they thought it would just make things worse. And it was a, it's a kind of a strange form of nuclear deterrence. This isn't the only example of it. When Pakistan acquired nuclear weapons, its generals and, and intelligence leaders, I think, um, felt they had a wider scope to make mischief in the region because there was a, a, a limit to how much response the international community was going to 
uh, bring. They did this at Kargil, where they fought this crazy war in Kashmir, uh, thinking that they would not be held accountable for it. And anyway, it was, this is a little bit different because it, it, the, the fundamental problem, to answer your question, was Pakistani instability. It's only been in the last couple of years that the Pakistani security services have kind of gotten a lid back on this problem, at least from a, from a violence perspective. So, you know, the levels of terrorism in Pakistan are still significant. I think last year, 500 civilians died in various kinds of terrorist attacks. But the overall violence has gone down and is now back to kind of where it was around 2005. And so they've come through this, this passage. Uh, you know, maybe there's more scope to put pressure on them now that they've stabilized again. But one of the ways they've stabilized is they've pushed the militants, the irreconcilable and most extreme militants, into Afghanistan. That's where the Islamic State has come from, by and large. And they've solved their problem by making Afghanistan's worse. Yes? Thank you. I'm curious uh, your thoughts around the role of corruption and endemic corruption in Afghanistan and how that's undermined our ability, the government's ability to uh, find peace, win over the populace, particularly in the, the south and the, the Pashtun areas. Yeah, so corruption was a big part of the debate about counterinsurgency doctrine. Let me see if I can find this uh, chapter really quickly. There was a, there's a point in September 2010 when the Obama administration got into a huge internal fight about how to think about corruption. And part of the problem was that the CIA, for to try to maintain security and to try to find local allies who would help in the fight against al-Qaeda, which was the main effort, you know, it resourced all of these um, strongmen, to use the polite term, um, like um, Ahmed Wali Karzai, Hamid's brother in Kandahar, and um, this character along the border, it's been Boldak, whose name I'm forgetting. Um, and they, therefore, with U.S. policy and with U.S. resources, were empowering corrupt, predatory government. While the Petraeus regime and H.R. McMaster, who's now National Security Advisor, was sent out to run a task force to try to clean up Dodge. Really, we gotta, if we can just solve the corruption problem, um, the, the war will go better. And so, I think this is it. There's this meeting, but they can't decide what kind of corruption really matters. Um, and so the State Department writes this long paper about various kinds of uh, corruption. So the paper, this is a meeting that was held in the Situation Room with President Obama on September 13, 2010. And their, their, uh, the briefing books contained a classified white paper from Richard Holbrook's office. It sought to distinguish among three categories of Afghan graft. There was high-level theft, meaning Hamid Karzai's relatives. There was predatory theft by cabinet office holders and presidential appointees who depended on Karzai's family. These were referred to as criminal patronage networks, or CPNs. Everything in Washington has an acronym. <laughs> so one prominent CPN included the executives and borrowers at Kabul Bank, where it had been discovered about $800 million in depositor, depositor funds had been distributed to influential politicians and power brokers who made no effort to pay back interest or capital. And then finally, there was, quote, functional corruption which might range from routine payoffs demanded by a traffic cop to the marketplace of bribery required to land jobs in the Afghan bureaucracy, 
from which the purchaser of a position could pursue further rake-offs to recoup, recoup the price of office. So they go round and around about these three categories of graft, and um, Robert Gates, who's still defense secretary, turns to Leon Panetta, who runs the CIA, and says, you know, you're the problem. You're, you're, uh, you're resourcing all of these, these thugs. And how can we have a corruption strategy when our strategy is the promotion of corruption? <laughs> and Panetta just fires back and says, we do it all over the world. It didn't give an inch. <laughs> Gates says, we are the principal source of corruption in Afghanistan. American contracting in Afghanistan had become larger than the opium and heroin trade, he pointed out. Eventually, they had some, one of these typical you know, NSC compromises where they accepted functional corruption, and they would go after CPNs, and they would maybe, if, the, if they find, found high-level corruption, they would turn the case over to Karzai, and he would decide whether to prosecute it. And if it was uh, involved a crime, a financial crime that touched American soil, then the Justice Department could prosecute it. But I mean, it was, it was a really a Rube Goldberg. I mean, it just made your head hurt trying to figure out what the final decision was, um, and the results were predictable. Yeah. I hope that the, some of the lessons we learned from Vietnam is that we got involved because we didn't understand the culture, we didn't understand the history, and that we've repeated that very much in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Can you agree with that? I mean, yes. Um, this was a war that, you know, came, that started in, reac in reaction to the shock of 9-11 and the uncertainty about whether another attack was coming. Um, and the Pentagon didn't have a war plan. Um, the CIA had, uh, had one because it had been working in the country for a couple of years with some of the anti-Taliban guerrillas. But, you know, there were, in that cabinet, I don't think there was a single person who had personal experience of Afghanistan. Um, Colin Powell and the Deputy Secretary of State Richard Armitage knew Pakistan, but they knew the army pretty much. That was uh, what they knew. And so, you know, the first section of the book about the fall of 2001 is called Blind into Battle. And that was really, there was, you know, there was a sense of urgency because they didn't know what was coming and they had been surprised by the planning cycle in, at 9-11. They felt they had to disrupt al-Qaeda before in case there was a second plot underway and they, they needed to break up al-Qaeda, get their leaders running and not planning. Um, but they, they had no expertise and no vision of a post-war Afghanistan from the beginning. So the whole thing was a kind of improvisation uh, right from the start. Now later there was a, a kind of a movement in the military and in military intelligence to try to argue that you know, we just need more cultural insights uh, all of our intelligence is about um, tactics and, you know, who's over that hill and what's that commander on the Taliban doing. And I think, you know, some of the really deeper experts in Afghanistan, scholars and linguists, you know, they, they sort of doubted that the U.S. Army machine at the major level, you know, was capable of developing the kinds of cultural insights that would, that would enable, you know, some kind of better outcome. There were some very noble and remarkable um, volunteers who became um, Afghan hands, literally. That was their, the program. There's a story of a tragic uh, example of someone who, who gave his whole career in the Air Force over to, to becoming an Afghan specialist. And his insights were remarkable and admirable. 
but there were a handful of people like that in the system. And the, you know, the big, if you go over and you see the US military encamped in a place like Afghanistan, um, you know, it's, it's remarkable at doing the things it does, but you know, area specialty and language and cultural anthropology is not one of the things that it does, um, not, not at that scale. You, know. you, you mentioned earlier that Robert Gates said the Taliban have always existed and they're part of the fabric of Afghanistan. You haven't presented a compelling argument that there's a good way out of this Pakistan problem with nuclear weapons and our vital interests. What would happen in, in your mind if we did just leave? Yeah, well, I'm, um, I think it would, the result would be a stronger Taliban, a stronger Islamic State. I mean, it's possible that the Afghan government and security forces would, would hold um, major cities in the north and not surrender Kabul. But, you know, the war is a stalemate in a military sense for a reason that involves our presence, which is that, you know, the Taliban have no air force and they have no answer to our air force. So every time they get together in big groups or try to take a city, we stop them from the air uh, and with Afghan partners and special forces on the ground. So if you pull the air force out of the war uh, and you just let the Taliban fight the Afghan security forces without their own air force, um, you know, I think some of the times when the Taliban have gotten close to taking cities like Kunduz and some places in Helmand, um, I think they would start, that would start to happen. And then the momentum of the war would, would shift. Um, you know, the Islamic State is in a section of Nangarhar in eastern Afghanistan. It's a, you know, it's a kind of a nasty um, and not, not huge group. Um, and they have been brutal in the way that the Islamic State has been brutal elsewhere, sectarian executions, beheadings, and, and really, and they've been in conflict with the Taliban. So that would be another thing that would probably intensify if, um, if we just packed up. And just a note on time, we have time for these last two questions. Okay, thanks. So thanks for your book. And I've been going through the index uh, because it's too big for me to handle all at once. And I was wondering what you felt about some of the early theories about why we were in Afghanistan, uh, starting with Bush and others have speculated for a long time. The oil pipeline from you know north that might go through Afghanistan that that was a valuable drive for you know the Allied forces. Uh, another one was mining. They brought up a lot of critical minerals at one point that was available. You don't seem to be uh, covering that, or, or I haven't found it yet. Uh, what's what's your response to that? Those early uh, yeah, issues. I yeah, I wrote, I wrote about that pipeline in Ghost Wars, the first volume of this two-volume history. That was when it was really kind of discussed during the Taliban period, and they brought a Taliban to Houston to try to negotiate a deal. And there's been a lot of fantasies about getting minerals out of Afghanistan. China has a copper mine. Um, you know, the problem is that if you don't have security, there's, there's no transportation, there's no industry, and I think the Chinese have probably uh, come, to, come to understand that, that whatever fantasy they had of Afghanistan supplying them um, with raw materials um, is, is that and, and not, not something that's going to come together anytime soon. Yes. Um, I'd like your opinion on our, our foreign aid to Pakistan. As you probably know, we give them several hundred million dollars a year. The administration has just started to withhold some of that. but. Uh, what are the trade-offs of uh, really 
trying to reduce that level of aid because of their support for the Taliban uh, versus the, the nuclear danger and what, what, do you have an opinion about which way the aid should go? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just, it's hard enough for me to try to figure out for everyone's sake what happened, <laughs> not necessarily what should be done, but, but I do uh, um, have one uh, sort of section, chapter in the book about one form of aid, and the aid that I think was immediately the target of the Trump administration is, um, I think it's called coalition support funds. And it's essentially reimbursement payments in the hundreds of millions of dollars that we've made directly to the Afghan army to essentially compensate them for the expense of fighting terrorists in Afghanistan. And there is a story about a colonel in the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad during the mid-2000s who was in charge of administering these funds. And uh, he would get these invoices every month from the Pakistanis. And it would say, um, cost of counterterrorism operations in federally administered tribal areas, colon, $400 million, something like that, you know, <laughs> for the last year or something. And Shapiro would call his Pakistani counterparts and say, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to need a little more specificity about this. You know, like, like, where were you? What weapons did you fire? Uh, do you have any photographs of your activity? They, they would bill like per diems for sailors who were in the Arabian Sea supposedly preventing terrorists from fleeing Pakistan by boat. And he thought it was, uh, you know, a form of legalized bribery and it didn't make any sense. There was no accountability. And he would, he went up to his chain at the Pentagon and said, you know, this is crazy and I don't want to go to jail in the United States for not having asked sufficient questions about this. And, and they said, you know, just shut up and pay the bills, basically. Yeah. So, anyway, on that happy note. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Steve Cole is a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of Director at S, The CIA and America's Secret War in Afghanistan and Pakistan. 2001 to 2016. He spoke at Seattle University's Piggott Auditorium on February 15th. His appearance was co-presented by the Elliott Bay Book Company and Town Hall Seattle. Thanks to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Tune in again soon. <laughs>